From New York, this is Democracy Now! As the war in Ukraine approaches its 17th month, we speak to two reporters who've closely looked at the role played by neo-Nazis in the war, from the Azov Battalion in Ukraine to the anti-Putin Russian militia that attacked Russian targets in May. It's the Azov exception where we go out of our way to celebrate these people, while at the same time, we are screaming that the greatest existential threat to America is white supremacy, where every anti-Semitic remark, everything that could be said is gets immediately amplified, gets immediately, oh, this is horrible, we need to take care of this, while at the same time, we're inviting neo-Nazis to Congress. But first, we speak to longtime national security reporter William Arkin about the CIA's secret role inside Ukraine and how the agency is shuttling weapons to Kyiv using a, quote, gray fleet of commercial aircraft. His new piece in Newsweek is headlined The CIA's Blind Spot About the Ukraine War. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Donald Trump said Tuesday federal prosecutors have informed him he's the target of a Justice Department criminal investigation into his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Trump made a similar announcement shortly before Jack Smith filed criminal charges over Trump's mishandling of classified documents. In Florida, the Trump-appointed federal judge overseeing the classified documents case Tuesday appeared skeptical of Trump's request to delay the trial until after the 20. 2024 election. But Judge Aileen Cannon also appeared unlikely to approve a request by federal prosecutors to start the trial by the end of this year. Meanwhile, all nine justices on Georgia's Supreme Court have rejected a bid by Trump's lawyers to block an investigation by Atlanta-area prosecutor Fannie Willis into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. Willis has said she'll announce in August whether charges will be brought in the case. In Michigan, the attorney general there, Dana Nessel, has charged 16 people with felonies for falsely claiming to be presidential electors as they attempted to overturn Trump's 2020 defeat in the state. As part of the orchestrated plan, we allege that 16 Michigan residents met covertly in the basement of Michigan GOP headquarters and knowingly and of their own volition signed their names to multiple certificates stating that they were the duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States of America for the state of Michigan. That was a lie. One of those charged is Michon Maddock, former co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party, a close ally to Trump and the wife of State Representative Matt Maddock. Michon Maddock previously told a gathering of local Republicans the Trump campaign had directed the fake elector scheme. In China, a series of unrelenting heat waves has created a soaring demand for electricity, leading to unprecedented amounts of coal consumption at China's more than 1,000 coal-fired power plants. This comes after the Chinese government approved a record-breaking 86 gigawatts of new coal-fired power capacity last year. 
In northern India, floodwaters from unusually heavy rains have pushed the Yamuna River to levels not seen in nearly half a century. On Tuesday, the swollen river was lapping the walls of the famed Taj Mahal, prompting fears the 17th-century monument could become damaged. In Iran, a combination of heat and humidity this week pushed the heat index at the Persian Gulf International Airport to 152 degrees Fahrenheit, with the dew point over 90 percent. That's close to the limit of what the human body can survive. Meanwhile, Europe is still sweltering. On Tuesday, Rome reached 107 degrees Fahrenheit, or nearly 42 degrees Celsius, while other Italian cities also shattered all-time temperature records. Some hospitals reported their highest number of daily admissions since the worst days of the COVID-19 pandemic. In Greece, the European Union sending water bombers and hundreds of firefighters and soldiers to battle wildfires that erupted around Athens. More wildfires are burning burning in Spain, Turkey and Switzerland. Here in the United States, more than 58 million people are enduring triple-digit temperatures this week, with forecasters warning a massive heat dome will remain fixed in southwestern and southern states. In Louisiana, the ACLU filed an emergency plea with a federal court this week asking for the transfer of children incarcerated at the notorious Angola prison. Advocates say the child prisoners, who are mostly black, were locked in windowless cells without air conditioning around the clock in the prison's former death row, as the heat index inside Angola topped 130 degrees Fahrenheit. In Texas, officials directed by Republican Governor Greg Abbott to apprehend asylum seekers at the southern border were ordered to push small children and nursing babies back into the Rio Grande to deny water to migrants, even in a sweltering heat. That's according to the Houston Chronicle, which obtained an email written by a Texas Public Safety Department agent calling for policy changes. The trooper, Nicholas Wingate, calls for the removal of barrels wrapped in razor wire placed in the Rio Grande River to stop migrants from crossing the river, writing to his colleagues, quote, this is nothing but an inhumane trap in high water and low visibility. He describes two incidents from last month where a four-year-old migrant girl and a pregnant woman having a miscarriage were found with severe injuries as they crashed into the barbed wire barrels while crossing the river. The young girl had also passed out from heat exhaustion. Wingate also wrote a migrant mother and one of her children drowned in the Rio Grande in early July and that the woman's other child was never found. Those drownings were never officially reported. In Sudan, the U.N. reports 200,000 people have been displaced just in the past week as fighting rages between the Army and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. In the four months since the conflict erupted, some 2.6 million people have been internally displaced and over 730,000 have fled Sudan. Survivors of the 2003 genocide in Darfur say the targeting of the Masalit people in today's conflict resembles the ethnic cleansing suffered in the region 20 years ago. The International Criminal Court launched an investigation last week into possible war crimes and crimes against humanity in Darfur. This is ICC Prosecutor Karim Khan. We are, by any analysis, not on the precipice of a human catastrophe, but in the very midst of one. It is occurring. And it's my analysis and my prayer 
and advised that we must act urgently, collectively, to protect the most vulnerable. In other news about the International Criminal Court, South Africa has said Russian President Vladimir Putin will not attend this year's BRICS summit. As a member of the ICC, which in March issued an arrest warrant for Putin for war crimes, South Africa would be obligated to arrest him if he entered South Africa. Syrian news outlets are reporting two Syrian soldiers were injured earlier today as Israel's military launched airstrikes around the capital, Damascus. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says the assault, which targeted military sites and warehouses operated by Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon, was the 20th such attack by Israel this year inside Syria. In Palestine, the Red Crescent Society says it's begun equipping first responders with helmets and bulletproof vests amidst a surge in attacks on medical workers by Israeli forces and settlers in occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank. The Red Crescent says there have been nearly 200 incidents targeting staff and ambulances so far this year, more than triple the rate seen over the same period last year. Meanwhile, the Israeli human rights group Peace Now, Shalom Achshav, reports Israel's far-right government has approved 13,000 new housing units and illegal settlements in the West Bank, the highest rate of construction since Peace Now began tracking settlements over a decade ago. In Israel, tens of thousands of protesters flooded the streets of cities nationwide Tuesday for the 28th consecutive week of protests against plans by the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu to gut Israel's judiciary. A final vote on the measure could come as soon as early next week. President Biden welcomed Israeli President Isaac Herzog to Washington, D.C. Tuesday, pledging U.S. support to Israel despite rising violence and human rights abuses against Palestinians and the continued expansion of illegal settlements in occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Herzog spoke to reporters outside the White House after meeting President Biden in the Oval Office. And we discussed thus many issues including the Iranian nuclear threat and the operations by Hezbollah to flare up the region, as well as our ironclad alliance on security, including the ability to build regional cooperation and move forward on the circle of peace. President Herzog will address a joint session of Congress today. Some progressive Democrats are planning to boycott the speech to protest Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Among those skipping the address are New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the first two Muslim women elected to Congress, Minnesota's Ilhan Omar and Michigan's Rashida Tlaib, who's Palestinian-American. On Tuesday, members of the House of Representatives voted 412 to 9 in favor of a resolution proclaiming Israel's not a racist or apartheid state. The vote was hastily organized after Seattle Congressmember Pramila Jayapal, who heads the Congressional Progressive Caucus, called Israel a racist state in public remarks this weekend. After facing criticism, Congressmember Jayapal later clarified that her comments were directed at the extreme right-wing government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Activists in Western Sahara are calling for solidarity from Palestinian rights groups after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Monday formally recognized Morocco's claims of sovereignty over the northwest African territory. Israel becomes the second country in the world to do so after Donald Trump tweeted U.S. recognition in December 2020.
Morocco's occupied Western Sahara since 1975 in defiance of the United Nations and international law. Over the past four decades, thousands of Western Sahara's indigenous people, the Sahrawi, have been tortured, imprisoned, killed and disappeared while resisting the Moroccan occupation. Speaking with Middle East Eye, Western Sahara-based activist Mohammed El-Baikam said, quote, Morocco relies on the same tools and methods as Israel in suppressing the Palestinians, occupying them, displacing them from their land, robbing them of their wealth, and controlling them, he said. Thailand's constitutional court has suspended lawmaker Pita Limjaroonrat, a top candidate for prime minister, after his liberal Move Forward party garnered the most support in May's national elections. Pita failed to secure the position of prime minister last week after being voted down by the Senate, which was appointed after a military coup in 2014. He's pledged to reform the military and the all-powerful Thai monarchy. He addressed his fellow lawmakers earlier today following a suspension. I think Thailand is not the same anymore, ever since May 14th. We have come only halfway from the people's victory, and there is another half to go. As I can no longer perform my duties, I would like to ask fellow members of parliament to continue to look after the people. And in a victory for criminal justice reform, the Illinois Supreme Court has ruled in favor of legislation abolishing the state's cash bail system. The 5-2 to two ruling overturned a decision by a lower court from last December, deeming the Pretrial Fairness Act unconstitutional. Illinois judges will no longer require people charged with a crime to post bail in order to be released from jail as they await trial, unless they're considered a threat to the public or likely to flee. The policy is expected to go into effect in September. In a statement, the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice said, quote, black people have been disproportionately impacted by wealth-based jailing. Giving people the opportunity to stay in their communities while awaiting trial will enable them to keep their jobs, housing and custody of their children, making us all safer, they said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Coming up, longtime national security reporter William Arkin on the CIA's secret role inside Ukraine and how the agency is shuttling weapons to Kyiv using a, quote, gray fleet of commercial aircraft. His investigation in Newsweek is headlined, The CIA's Blind Spot About the Ukraine War. Back in a minute. Winter Evening by the Ukrainian musician Valentin Silvestrov. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. 
Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the role of the CIA in the war in Ukraine. A recent cover story of Newsweek revealed the CIA shuttling weapons into Ukraine using a, quote, gray fleet of commercial aircraft that crisscrosses Central and Eastern Europe. CIA personnel are also going into Ukraine on secret missions. According to one source, CIA agents are assisting Ukrainians with new weapons and systems. One senior military intelligence official told Newsweek, quote, the CIA CIA has been operating inside Ukraine under strict rules and with a cap on how many personnel can be in the country at any one time, unquote. The CIA is also using Poland as its clandestine hub to coordinate its operations inside Ukraine. After the September 11th attacks, the CIA also used Poland to house one of its secret black sites where prisoners were tortured. We're joined now by William Arkin, senior editor at Newsweek. His investigation for the magazine is headlined, The CIA's Blind Spot About the Ukraine War. Today, William Arkin is joining us from Sweden. He's a prize-winning national security reporter. His books include Top Secret America, The Rise of the New American Security State. Bill Arkin, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you start off by telling us, in this many-month investigation, Investigation, what you did, what surprised you most? And don't speak in sound bites. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for having me on again. You know, I worked on this question of what the role of the CIA was in Ukraine, and I wanted to know particularly whether or not all of the Hollywood rumors surrounding the agency, uh, its possible involvement in the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines, its possible involvement in other sabotage attacks inside Russia. Uh, a lot of the uh, news that I was hearing about uh, the presence of the CIA on the ground and its covert assistance, I wanted to know how much of it was true. And uh, I went down this path to uh, try to get to the truth. Um, what I came up with most importantly, and really this is most importantly, is that the CIA is an intelligence agency. And so its number one mission in Ukraine is to collect intelligence, collect intelligence, not just on what the Russians are doing, but also on what the Ukrainians are doing. And that's the biggest blind spot, as I identified, which is that the United States knows as little about what Zelensky is up to and what he's thinking and what his views are about the future as it does about Vladimir Putin and his future plans and intentions. And so this might come as a surprise to some people, but as my sources explained it to me, the reality is that Ukraine is not an ally of the United States. We have no treaty obligations towards Ukraine. And the United States is not at war with Russia. So this is a particularly unique battlefield in which the CIA is playing an outsized role. But it is playing an outsized role because the Biden administration has been firm in saying that the U.S. military will not be involved in any direct way in the fighting or on the battlefield or indeed inside Ukraine. So you have the situation where the uh, the CIA's primary mission, which is to figure out what it is that the Russians and the Ukrainians are doing, as well as now its augmented mission, which is to play a greater role in the provision of arms to Ukraine, a greater role in counterintelligence, a greater role in, uh, in corralling all of the neighbor states to Ukraine so that they stay firmly 
engaged in the war, some countries of which the domestic population is not as enthusiastic about war with Russia as is, say, for instance, Poland, that this role uh, really stretches the CIA quite thin in terms of what it's doing, but also it's it's got its hand in a little bit of everything. And I would say that I would give it low marks on understanding the intentions of Putin or Zelensky, very high marks on understanding what's going on in the battlefield. But the most high marks are in moving the, the, the billions of dollars worth of weapons uh, that the United States and NATO has pledged to Kiev. But now, uh, William Arkin, the the CIA is no stranger to Ukraine. Clearly, in in the post World War II period, uh, it was involved uh, in developing um, uh, right wing groups within Ukraine that were uh, opposing the Soviet Union. A lot of them former neo Nazis. And as you write, uh, the uh, the CIA has been central to the war, this war, even before it began, when Biden tapped uh, Director uh, William Burns as his global troubleshooter. Could you talk about Burns's role and this historic connection between the CIA and uh, and groups in Ukraine? Well, when Joe Biden became president, he appointed a number of his close associates, uh, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, to be his main national security actors. Uh, but the person that was appointed to be the director of the CIA, former ambassador to Russia, William Burns, and a, and a, a foreign service officer in his career, uh, was somebody who was much more uh, considered to be the senior statesman if, uh, of the administration, if you will, the person with the most experience. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February uh, 2022, uh, it, it was no surprise that Burns became the central figure in this uh, in this uh, war and that uh, he had both the, the superior knowledge of Putin and and of Russia. But also he had had a long career specializing in Eastern Europe. So when he was appointed uh, the sort of the, the Biden administration's uh, back channel negotiator, diplomat and, and main spy, uh, it it. It fell to him uh, to handle relations with uh, Kiev. Remember, the U.S. embassy was closed for a long time. It fell to the CIA uh, to handle the clandestine relations that existed with Poland and other countries, uh, relationships which had been built up since 9-11 and, and, and since even the end of the Cold War. So uh, the CIA has played an extremely important role in the modern era and I would say that the legacy of what the CIA may have done in the Soviet era uh, just is not represented by those who work in the CIA today, uh, nor is it part of what the CIA thinks its main purpose is. Uh, and in terms of uh, why the Biden administration has not insisted on more uh, uh, openness on the part of uh, Ukraine's government, given the enormous amount of aid that the U.S. is giving, uh, why hasn't uh, it pressed uh, President Zelensky to be more forthcoming about uh, uh, what Ukraine is doing? Well, I think that the CIA and the U.S. government has pressed the Ukrainians. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have full control over them. The reality is that the U.S.'s main objective and the Biden administration's supreme objective has always been to see that the war not be escalated, that that 
that the United States uh, not be uh, put into a situation where it's fighting against Russia directly. And part of that was to urge Ukraine not to attack Russia, not to attack Belarus, where R Russian forces were deployed. And that really pretty much worked up until about September or October of last year, first when the Nord Stream bombings occurred, and then second when the attack on the Kerch Bridge occurred, uh, in which case uh, the United States, the U.S. intelligence believed that uh, Ukraine was behind both of them. And and though it believed that Ukrainian factions were behind both of those attacks, it wasn't altogether clear to the CIA that Zelensky himself uh, had foreknowledge or even had been read in on those operations, because Zelensky's power himself, the, those powers are are himself limited in, inside Ukraine. And so the CIA might have put a lot of pressure on Zelensky and his government in order to be more transparent or to deal with corruption or to deal with accountability. But it's not altogether clear that uh, Zelensky has full control over the Ukrainian military or the Ukrainian secret services, uh, nor is it necessarily the case that the United States is in a position to really exert much leverage against Ukraine at this point. It's like uh, too big to fail uh, that the United States has invested so much in the Ukraine war that it, it can't really credibly uh, say to Zelensky, if you don't do X, we're going to stop supplying you with arms. It's just not a tenable policy anymore. So the CIA represents these many interests, the interest not to escalate with Russia, the interest not to have Russia resort to the use of nuclear weapons, uh, trying to understand what Putin's position and Putin's thinking is. But at the same time, it, it struggles with the question of whether or not it understands well enough what it is that Ukraine wants and also what it is that Ukraine will accept uh, beyond its public rhetoric. Uh, in, in, in trying to end the war. You mentioned uh, William Burns, uh, now head of the CIA, very interesting key figure, former ambassador to Russia. Um, and you talked about how he went to Russia before the war. He's also the one who, for years, warned against the expansion of NATO, saying it's going to provoke Russia. So you talk about what the U.S. understands about Ukraine. What does the U.S. understand about Russia right now and what, working with Russia uh, before uh, Russia invaded? Well, I'm afraid that the Biden administration has really squandered the possibility of being a third actor in this war. Uh, the United States has aligned itself 100 percent with Ukraine. And as a result of that, I don't see much movement or much interest even on the part of the U.S. government in Washington uh, to be a third party, to, to actually be a negotiator, to find a, a peaceful resolution so really, no one is playing that role. The United Nations is not playing that role. Sweden is not playing that role anymore now that it aspires to be a member of NATO. Uh, there is no neutral party that really is playing the role of trying to end the conflict between the two parties, which who are essentially stalled right now in combat, uh, where there's not really much movement on either the side, but the k killing continues. So it, it was the case that in the minds of Russia, the expansion of NATO was provocative and, and may, in the theory of, uh, of, of national security, uh, been a strategic threat to Russia. And it is probably the case that when history is written, uh, we will say that NATO was a little bit too greedy uh, in its zeal uh, to expand into Eastern Europe. 
Uh, but the reality is that that doesn't excuse the Russian invasion, not in 2014 nor in 2022. And the reality for the CIA is that they need to understand what Putin's intentions are, not only to understand the implications of, of Ukraine's actions, particularly its increasing actions in Crimea and across the border in Russia, but also to understand what it is that, that, that Putin will settle for as part of a, a settlement, and also what it is that Zelensky will settle for. So it's a tricky situation where I don't really have a lot of confidence that the CIA is fully on top of what uh, either of these two leaders think. William Arkin, I wanted to double back to a comment you just made a, a few moments ago in terms of Ukraine, that you said that uh, it's not clear that uh, President Zelensky is fully in charge of his military. Uh, do your sources indicate to you who, uh, who, what the CIA believes, who are the other potential f uh, forces that might have some control over the military? Well, in the structure of the Ukrainian government, you have the presidency and the office of the president. It's a rather new uh, democratic institution, so it only has so much power. And, and, and during a war, uh, that power is somewhat diminished. Then there's the military itself and its commander in chief, uh, who is the most powerful uh, actor uh, in Ukrainian society today. But you also have the National Guard and you have Ukrainian intelligence and you have the Ukrainian secret agencies, including secret special operations forces. And it's not clear who indeed is in charge of all of them. Uh, my guess is that the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces is nominally in charge. Uh, but there's also a desire, which my sources particularly highlighted, uh, to some sometimes for politicians and even for generals not to know what's going on, uh, because that gives them both plausible denial, but also allows them to speak honestly to uh, to U.S. leaders or to other NATO leaders to uh, be able to say that uh, they are not clear as to what happened. Uh, so if the general in Ukraine or President Zelensky himself says, I don't know who attacked uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, they want to be able to say it truthfully. And so sometimes they just don't want to know. They they intentionally don't want to know. But the structure of the government and how the decision making is actually working and what the power of these secret agencies are and how much they have and have not done inside Ukraine, well, that in itself is a bit of a mystery. It's not one that anyone has a clear understanding of. And that anyone might include the president himself, Zelensky himself. Very quickly, Bill Arkin, before we end, you write, now, more than a year after the invasion, the U.S. sustains two massive networks, one public, the other clandestine. Ships deliver goods to ports in Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany and Poland. Those supplies are moved by truck, train and air to Ukraine. Clandestinely, though, a fleet of commercial aircraft, the Gray Fleet, crisscrosses Central and Eastern Europe, moving arms and supporting CIA operations. And you talk about the U.S.'s central base being in Poland. Now, the Biden administration asked you not not to identify um, who the commercial airlines are and what exactly these networks are and talk about their significance? Well, I, I think that it, it, there's an extraordinary amount of activity going on of moving arms and ammunition uh, and materiel into Ukraine, and it's happening mostly through uh, these Eastern European neighbors of, of Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Ukraine, Poland, etc. But the, the, the truth is that 
Uh, and this is one thing that I did learn in my investigation that I hadn't considered. U.S. intelligence also believes that the Russians, the, the, the FSB, the Russian intelligence services themselves, are not really privy to how the mo- arms are moving into the country, that they're not re- they don't really have the intelligence ability to, uh, to track arms as they're coming into Ukraine. And as a result of that, uh, the CIA insists that, uh, that this is a secret, that it's an actual secret of uh, the, the divulgence of which would have an, a deleterious effect on national security. Um, uh, we were willing to not mention the countries and not mention the name of the airline that's involved. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that uh, it's quite interesting uh, that the assessment of the agency is that the Russian intelligence is very limited in what it can see. And to some degree, that is uh, that's proven. In, in Russian attacks and Russian reattacks, where it's clear that despite all of the money that Russia spends on its FSB, on the ex-KGB, on, on satellites, etc., uh, that it just isn't up to the quality of NATO or the United States in its own intelligence collection. Well, William Arkin, we want to thank you for being with us, senior editor at Newsweek. We're going to link to your new investigation for the magazine, headlined The CIA's Blind Spot About the Ukraine War. Bill Arkin was speaking to us from Sweden. Coming up, as the war in Ukraine approaches its 17th month, we'll speak to two reporters who've closely looked at the role played by neo-Nazis in the war, from the Azov Battalion in Ukraine to the anti-Putin Russian militia that attacked Russian targets in May. Back in a minute. Dark side, Faulknery. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show with a first. We are going to talk today about what's happening in Ukraine. We're joined right now by two people, um, by a journalist who's written extensively in The Intercept, a reporter who's looked at the role of neo-Nazis in the war. The Ukrainian-born journalist Lev Golenkin is also with us. He recently wrote a piece for The Nation headlined, The Western Media is Whitewashing the Azov Battalion. The piece looks at the neo-Nazi roots of one of Ukraine's most heralded paramilitary forces. Earlier this month, Turkey released five former Azov commanders 
defenders who are being held in Turkey. They flew back on a plane with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Meanwhile, The Intercept recently detailed how an anti-Putin Russian militia that carried out attacks inside Russia in May is led by a neo-Nazi who's maintained links with American neo-Nazis. That piece was written by Ben Maku, a national security reporter who used to work as a correspondent for Vice News Tonight. Ben's also just written a new piece for The Intercept about an American army that wanted for murder in the United States, who escaped to Ukraine to fight with the right sector, an ultra-nationalist Ukrainian militia. We're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, but Lev Galenkin and Ben Maku, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ben, I want to talk with you about um, the piece that you wrote, Russian Militia, has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figures. Why don't you lay out what you found? So the leader of the Russian Volunteer Corps, Denis Kapustin, is this well-known neo-Nazi figure, not only in Europe, but he also came to prominence in the United States when he hosted a podcast in 2021 with a man named Rob Rundo, who is the founder and leader of the Rise Above movement. This is a character who has been very involved with the online neo-Nazi community, but also his group uh, was at the Charlottesville riots. Some of them were indicted. He himself uh, came under probe by the FBI for some actions at Berkeley. And after those podcast appearances, I dug a little further, and Dennis Kapustin also had connections to this man named Christopher Polhouse, who is this four-year uh, Marine Corps veteran that now leads this group called the Blood Tribe, but most recently has shown up to uh, drag events in Ohio, carrying a pistol, uh, doing the sig hail, and intimidating uh, protesters. So to me, when I started to see these connections with someone like Denis Kabustin, who very clearly has at least the quiet support of Ukrainian forces when he attacked Russia from Ukraine, it, it, it to me was very significant, especially when you saw that American weapons and American armored vehicles were allegedly used by the group. Uh, from what you can tell, how uh, extensive are the far-right groups in Russia and, and, and their possible connections to those in Ukraine? Well, far-right groups in Russia and Ukraine, they have had links before, but I, I would say, I mean, the Russian far-right groups, they, they are extremely anti-Putin. They had been in the past. I, I covered soccer hooligans in Russia in 2016 uh, right on the lead up to the World Cup, because many of them were talking about causing violence uh, at, the, at the World Cup in, in 2018. And these groups were extremely anti-Putin. They were, some of them had, had actually done uh, prison sentences for, for terrorism. And these are the types of figures that are now a part of the Russian Volunteer Corps. And, and, and to be clear, these types, of, these types of individuals are not only hyper-violent and have been involved in criminal networks in Russia, but they are very much, you know, very, very pronounced neo-Nazis that, you know, adhere to extremely racist and violent ideologies. And these are the types of people that are involved in the Russian Volunteer Corps. Let me bring Lev Galenkin into this conversation. Um, ben, uh, Lev, can you talk about your most recent piece and also the significance of Zelensky flying back with Turkey with the permission of Erdogan uh, to the ire of Putin um, the, with the Azovstal um, 
leaders. Can you talk about who they are and what exactly this deal was? Yeah. Um, the commander of Azov, who was—this this is people who were trapped in Mariupol, who gave themselves up to the Russians, and who, according to a prisoner exchange deal, were supposed to stay in Turkey until the end of the war. Uh, Zelensky broke that deal and brought them back. The leader, Denis Prokopenko, uh, he's somebody who commanded Azov, and he's the type of person who Western media says is an example of not a neo-Nazi. Okay, um, in in reality, he came out of the Kiev soccer hooligan milieu. Uh, it's called the White Boys Club. Uh, the name speaks for itself. He's been photographed numerous times with uh, a Totenkopf, which is one of the most common neo-Nazi symbols in the world. And he was part of Azov's beginning. Uh, he was part of Azov's beginning from 2014, from when there was still just a battalion formed of a neo-Nazi gang. And it's it's one he's now returned. Uh, either he will begin his duties as commander of Azov again now, or he's already been in, reinstituted. But um, it's it's insane that he's the type of person who we look at and we say, you know, Azov no longer is commanded by far right groups when when you have somebody like that. I mean. There has been criticism of your reporting, Lev, saying that you're making too much of the white supremacist influences or the far right, the neo-Nazi influences now in Ukraine in the fighting against Russia, that, though they may have had their beginnings there. Um, can you respond to that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty insane that every time Marjorie Taylor Greene sneezes, uh, it's the second coming of Hitler. And yet, here we have two brigades, brigades of neo-Nazis, and we're perfectly fine with it. So, I mean, the, the way I look at it is you can support Ukraine without glorifying, without whitewashing neo-Nazis. And it's insane that we are doing this. I, it's, I think if I was reporting on neo-Nazis anywhere else, I wouldn't have gotten any criticism. But it's because they're our neo-Nazis, and we're celebrating them then I've gotten criticism. I mean, I think it's—I didn't start the obsession with Azov. Putin did when he began this war, but also our foreign service and our media began when they started celebrating them as heroes. So um, I'd like—I mean, anybody who's criticizing this, it really doesn't matter, because I, I feel that t two brigades of neo-Nazis is too, too many, especially for us to be supporting. Can you talk about what happened at Stanford University on June 29th, the panel that it held from the Azov Brigade? Lay out the scene for us. Uh, Azov has had uh, extensive tours of America with these wives. That Dennis Prokopenko's wife was one of them, as well as an Azov veteran. Um, they would tour and they would do goodwill relationship building. And uh, they've been managed, they've been invited to Congress, they met with members of Congress, and twice, last fall and now last month, they've been to Stanford, which is incredible that you have this university, which ironically, one of Stanford's institutes published what is probably the most exhaustive study of Azov's neo-Nazi links, okay? So one of Stanford's own institute for combating extremism has tracked Azov and has extensively reported on them. And yet, at the same time, Stanford invited 
them to campus twice. Both times they've met with prominent people, with former Russia, ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, with uh, Francis Fukuyama. It's, and they, they're going there, they're projecting their uh, logo in, on the campus, which is a neo-Nazi logo, a wolf's angle. And uh, Stanford apparently is perfectly fine with welcoming them. Uh, the, the, the incredible part is that Stanford before has had a row when a lefty Jewish American cartoonist came on campus and who uses uh, sarcastically uses neo uh, uses Nazi imagery. When that happened, Stanford suddenly had a problem. Stanford started putting out statements and having events about how this could trigger students and how this makes people uncomfortable. And yet you have a neo-Nazi insignia, a neo-Nazi group on campus, and they're welcome. They're, they have the red carpet out for them. It's, it's, it's stunning and it's just irresponsible. And uh, Lev Golinkin, I wanted to ask you, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Ukraine had been, uh, there were numerous articles being published in, in Europe and the U.S. about how Ukraine had become a, 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 uh, a meeting point for far-right and neo-Nazi groups from the United States and Russia. There were regular conferences there. And of course, we've had thousands of foreigners uh, volunteer to fight uh, against the Russian uh, uh, invading troops. Groups. What is your sense of what proportion of these foreign fighters are also uh, neo-Nazis? It's hard to get the proportion, especially these days, because there's just so much unreported. There's so much under the radar. It's the point is that Azov has remained a hub for neo-Nazis to come over and they can get battlefield experience. It's, it's, it's no different than the networks of Islamists who recruited ISIS when they recruited people from all over the world to come and get experience. So you have this, and it's, Azov is only a tiny part of the Ukrainian military, but they also have, I mean, how many, how many, how many world countries have actual neo-Nazi units? So Azov has used this war to their advantage. They've used it brilliantly, and they are they are tremendous fighters. And it doesn't help that um, America and Western media, the same media who spent seven years tracking Azov and tracking its neo-Nazi nature, suddenly at the beginning of this invasion, suddenly turned around and said that all that all of a sudden this organization stopped being far right. It's 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 an incredible, and this is what attracted my nation article. It's just an incredible feat of whitewashing, with just denying reality, with Western media across the board suddenly saying, based on nothing, based on based on propaganda, that these that this entire group that attracted neo Nazis from all over the world, that we've reported on, has suddenly stopped stopped being neo Nazis, and now they're okay. Uh, it's it's North Korean levels of propaganda. And to see this happen in Western media, it's, it's rather disturbing. I want to bring back in Ben Maku. Um, ben, can you talk about the new piece just out today from The Intercept? Fugitive combatant wanted for murder, an army that escaped to Ukraine and fought the Russians. It's about a veteran named Craig Lang. Uh, tell us his story. So Craig Lang is an Iraq and Afghanistan war veteran, and he left the military in 2014 under very murky circumstances. He allegedly had an armed confrontation with his now ex-wife. 
He went AWOL on his base, and then he left the military. He says it was a dishonorable discharge, or he says it was a uh, an other than honorable discharge. And the military won't actually clarify it. They'll, and the DOJ just says that it's a discharge. But following that, he worked in the oil fields in North Dakota and saw the news in Ukraine around 2015 and thought to himself, I want to go over there. And with a few Facebook messages and some exchanges with people there, he ended up uh, in Donbass, which at the time was a frozen trench warfare uh, against Russian-backed uh, separatists, but also Russian regulars. And he was fighting for a group called the Right Sector, which is a very ultra-nationalist organization that's sort of been this, or has been, a popular meeting ground for foreign fighters for many years. Uh, it attracted lots of neo-Nazis, but also anarchists and, and, and essentially just radicals. And he was fighting in a unit of mostly foreigners that subsequently got uh, war crimes investigations into them, both by the FBI and by foreign authorities. And around 2017, he left, came back to the United States, and it's around that point with someone else, uh, another U.S. Army veteran who also served in the right sector. Uh, the DOJ alleges that he uh, schemed and killed uh, a couple in Florida uh, in, in a gun sale to finance a trip to Venezuela where he was going to fight with uh, anti-Venezuelan government forces. Now, he apparently ended up getting to Colombia. He left and went back to Ukraine in 2018, 2019. And around that time, the FBI was onto him and he ended up in Ukrainian custody. And since then, he's been in this back and forth, but uh, in courts. But what is really interesting is by 2021, he, right around the, the end of the year, uh, he appealed his case to the European Court of Human Rights. And that allowed him to stay in the country, but he was on essentially house arrest or Kiev city, city limits arrest. And, of course, we all know by February 2022, uh, the Russian uh, full-scale invasion of the country happened. And as that was happening, someone like Lang, who's, who's fought uh, extensively not only in, in Ukraine, but also for the U.S. military, ended up offering his service, uh, services up. And where did he end up uh, right away was the right sector. And he ended up fighting all the way till August 2022, at which point Ukrainian authorities finally uh, booted him out of uniform. And now he's facing extradition again. But I think more than anything, why I found this story so fascinating is that clearly this war and, you know, we're seeing more and more just how much control the Ukrainian military has on what's been going on, especially in the early days. You know, a lot of things have slipped through the cracks. And I think there's no question that the U.S. military has had similar problems in their own prosecution of wars over the last 20 years. But... I think, you know, when the Pentagon is offering up billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine uh, to defend itself, there needs to be some amount of scrutiny as to how, the, how its military and, you know, looking at things like Azov Battalion and right sector being involved in, in, in their actual military apparatus and how that operates and how someone like Lang, who did fight for the country twice, could also serve with the military, knowing that he was facing extradition for you know, pretty grisly double murder uh, that that involves a, a very lengthy, uh, a very lengthy set of court documents and allegations against him. Well, well, Ben, I wanted to ask you a, a, a similar question. The, the uh, is the situation in Ukraine analogous to 
what happened, uh, for instance, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that drew jihadists from around the world uh, and, uh, and obviously became the basis for the development of al-Qaeda, or is the fact that it is such a conventional war, not a guerrilla war, uh, making it a lot more difficult for these foreign fighters who come in uh, to stay very long or participate? I'm wondering your sense of that. So I've been covering this for many years, this exact network pipeline, because I knew very early on, I, I, I followed uh, several very ultra-violent neo-Nazi groups like the base and Adam Waffen Division. There was always a lot of ambitions to get these kinds of guys through to Ukraine. I knew of one ex-base member who actually ended up in Ukraine and fought, not exactly sure exactly which part or which unit he was with, but... The Ukrainian military ended up kicking him and another American out of the country in the fall of 2020 for joining a neo-Nazi organization and trying to fight for the war. So we know that there, there has been secretive pipelines and networks. And I know from my own sources and my own information that that still exists. Now, is it to the extent to which we thought it could be? Uh, there was a lot of, uh, of analysts and experts saying that this was going to turn into sort of this ISIS-like network that was going to mimic very much so what the Islamic State looked like in you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. I would say, and I think many people who've been studying this, say that that hasn't happened, or at least we don't know exactly how that has happened. But I will say, looking back at someone like Christopher Polhouse, who's connected to Denis Kapustin, um, who's the leader of the Russian uh, Volunteer Corps, this is a man who's now said he wants to go join the war in Ukraine. So I think the ambitions of the far right and seeing how this this conflict continues. And, you know, I, I've always said the longer it continues, the more opportunities for this sort of thing to happen will become. And I, I do think the Ukrainian military and the authorities do not want this to happen. And I think they're, they're, they're vigilant to some extent. But I also think that in times of war and, uh, you know, I've, I've crossed that border into Ukraine to, through Poland, and I know how porous it can be. You know, the the government has a lot on its plate, and I think trying to stop uh, American extremists getting over, while I think they can do a pretty good job of it, uh, there's no doubt that that could be a problem. And I think this is something that is sort of a, a wait and see. Uh, you know, when it comes to, you mentioned the Mujahideen, we didn't know exactly how severe that problem got and the formation of al-Qaeda till quite a few years later. So I think it, the same sort of applies to, to the, the war in Ukraine. But as I said, we do know that those secretive networks, they do exist. Uh, I think they still exist. Uh, how, the scale, I don't think, is on the level of Islamic State or the Mujahideen, but I do think that these, these links and these international networks are, are, are very much around. Um. Lev Galenkin, um, if you can talk about—Ben was just talking about Denis Kapustin, um, who was described by the Anti-Defamation League as a Russian neo-Nazi. Can you talk about the Russian neo-Nazi elements within Wagner? And I was, like, shocked to learn that Wagner was named, the Wagner Mercenary Group, by its founder for the composer Wagner, um, who was Hitler's favorite composer. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Putin's uh, justification, his excuse for this war, was to what he called denazify Ukraine. 
the, the pretense he made for his illegal invasion for the war is that Ukraine has neo-Nazis and Russia is going to invade and they're going to get rid of them. He did this because partly to partly because he didn't have any other excuses and also partly because he wanted to to tap into Russia's memory of World War II and fighting the Nazis back then. The irony is that uh, denazifying Ukraine is being done in large part by the Wagner Group, which is uh, riddled with neo-Nazis. So uh, it's, it shows, I mean, first it shows the hypocrisy of Russia that it's using neo-Nazis to uh, supposedly denazify Ukraine, where instead what they're doing is committing war crimes, uh, committing an illegal invasion on this. It's... Um, it's interesting because most neo-Nazis split, you have a lot of uh, them splitting depending on how they view Russia. Uh, some groups of neo-Nazis view Russia as the last bastion of the white race, and they admire Putin and love him. You see a lot of, a lot of U.S. in the far right, they view Russia that way. And then the, on the other side is people who view Russia as not even a white country, as a barbaric uh, Asian horde that Ukraine and Poland and the Baltics have to hold back. So depending on where and where one falls, that's why you kind of have neo-Nazis on both sides of this conflict. And they're, they have very identical worldviews. It's just it depends on how they see Russia and what happened, that they go on one side or the other side of the conflict. And Lev, as a Ukrainian, as a Ukrainian-American, are you concerned about what will happen, about the empowering of the neo-Nazis within Ukraine um, when the war ends? Yeah, I mean, I think you don't have to be a Ukrainian-American or an American to just be concerned because uh, these people are getting a national profile. And the message that we are sending is that if you're the right type of neo-Nazi, we will arm you, we will train you, we will take you to Congress, we will celebrate you across our media, you will be our hero. And, for example, Facebook did the incredible, incredible move where they banned Azov, all Azov pages, they had them banned as a hate group. After the invasion began, Facebook announced that they still have Azov listed as a, as a hate group, but it's, they're going to allow posts praising Azov. In other words, yeah, they're a hate group, but, you know, hate groups can do good things too. The, the good people on both sides. And this is what this war has, has created. And eventually, Facebook just wound up dropping us off from its hate, list of hate groups altogether. So uh, we're sending a very dangerous message that if you're the right type of neo-Nazis, we will not only work with you, we will celebrate you. And, and I think that message is going to be heard across the world, and, and it's deeply problematic. Ben, we have 20 seconds. Your final comments from your research years in Ukraine. Well, I would agree with Lev that, you know, when this ends, that's going to be the real question. I had someone from the Azov uh, movement tell me, who is quite senior in the political side, say to me in February 2022 that Ukraine's going to be the next Texas of Europe because there's so many weapons there. And I think when this is all over, that's going to be something that we're all going to have to face as a security issue in Europe. And I think when you have far-right extremists who might have access to that, that may be quite a problem to look out for. Well, we're going to leave it there. Ben Maku, national security reporter uh, for The Intercept. We'll link to your pieces there. And Lev Galenkin, Ukrainian-American journalist, will link to your recent piece in The Nation, The Western Media's Whitewashing the Azov Battalion. I'm Amy Goodman.